Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Opinion polls, pacts, party political broadcasts, and quite a lot of protesters. Welcome to week two of your Christmas election, Britain. The Brexit party will not contest the 317 seats the Conservatives won at the last election. I think the Conservative party has, I'm afraid, fundamentally changed. No referendum in the first term for Labour government. It took a morning for that position to crumble. This should be declared a national emergency. Uh, Mama, yes. Cyber attacks that took place yesterday. Got your time, Boris, had you? Yeah. Where you been? Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. In this special Friday election episode of the podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Sir John Curtis for a fascinating chat about the polls. Can we trust them? What are they saying? And most interestingly of all, how does he do the exit poll that we get at 10pm on election night? And how does he make it as accurate as it can be? In a moment, I'll also have a chat with Esther Weber about what's been in the election news this week. But first, if you've got a question about the election, whatever it might be, politicians, policies or even the polls, get in touch. Record it on your phone as an audio file or a voice memo. Email it to us, redboxatthetimes.co.uk. Include your name and where you're from and we'll feature you in an upcoming episode where we try to clear up all election confusion. But um, I'm joined now by Esther Webb, the Red Box supporter. Esther, we've survived another week of the election campaign. It seems like a long time ago it's now. Uh, only a week. Only another week since we were last here. But the week kicked off with Nigel Farage, reluctant publicity shine Nigel Farage, back in the headlines because he was pulling out in 317 seats held by the Tory party. It seemed like a big moment. What impact do we think it's actually having? After the big kind of fanfare of his announcement, people began to tweak that actually it might not be that much of a seismic event after all, because really all it means is the Tories have more of a reasonable hope of hanging on to the seats they already hold. But in order to make real inroads and go for the majority they really want, they're going to need to take some seats off Labour. The Brexit Party haven't said they'll stand down altogether in those seats, and therefore they're still taking votes off the Tories in the seats they really need to win. And what was interesting, I thought, was YouGov did some polling where they... Uh, in the same way that when you go ask someone in Cornwall who you're going to vote for, they don't put the SNP and Ply Cymru on the list. So now they're also not going to put the Brexit Party in those seats where they're not standing. And it gave a bit of a boost to the Tory party when they were presented only with the candidates and the candidates' names where they existed. It also gave a bit of a boost to the Labour Party because the local incumbent Labour MP seems to do well. But if you dug into the details where the Brexit Party aren't standing, about two-thirds of those Brexit Party voters are going to the Tory party. About 5 or 6% are going to the Labour Party, so it's clearly going to help the Tory party. What I wonder is if the overall message that Leave voters might get is, 
Nigel Farage seems to think that Boris Johnson's all right. Boris Johnson's Brexit deal is all right. So we might as well just vote for Boris Johnson. I think that really that seems to be the more subtle and possibly more important impact. Farage is no longer saying this is a betrayal, we can't abide this, and he's sending out the message that he can support some form of Johnson's deal. Although possibly he might have wanted to tell his social media team, because still, if you Google the term Boris Johnson is a liar, you get loads of hits from the Brexit party <laughs> slacking off the deal. Yeah, it's almost like they've scheduled a load of tweets and just gone out for the afternoon. Um, we've all done it. We've all done it. Gone to the pub. Um, the other thing, uh, sort of overriding theme of the week, before we get to some of the detail, is the sense that if this starts looking like a fork conclusion for the Tory party, James Johnson was Theresa May's pollster in Downing Street. He's writing for Red Box throughout the campaign. Uh, he wrote a piece for us this week pointing out, uh, he carried out some polling for us and asking people, what do you think is going to happen? And only about was it 7 or 9% of people think that Labour are going to win the election with a majority of any sort. If people just assume that Boris Johnson is going to win in the same way they did with Theresa May, then it becomes a problem because the Tories really need to keep up the pretense that Jeremy Corbyn is this great threat who's going to get into the And James, in his piece, talked about how in the sort of inquest into what went wrong in the 2017 campaign, part of the problem was people never thought it was really a threat. And he said he presented this to the cabinet in the cabinet room shortly after the election. And one cabinet minister said it was the most depressing thing he'd ever heard in the cabinet room, which just the massive, overwhelming problems that the Tory party had and their failure really to communicate that Jeremy Corbyn was much of a threat. And I remember that as well being a factor in the EU referendum, people saying, oh, well, Leave is never going to win, but, you know, I feel strongly about this, so I may as well go out and put my cross next to it. And then, of course, they did win. If you assume that Boris Johnson's going to win, then maybe you can vote for your Labour MP, or you could, you know, take a chance on the Lib Dems, because that'd be a nice thing to do locally. The actual result can end up being different. Well, let's talk about what's actually happened this week then. Boris Johnson started the week mopping floors, and then we saw him making tea. Yeah, he didn't seem to be much good at either <laughs> of those things. He was looking quite a bit like someone who hasn't used them up before. We did wave, he waved a brush around once, didn't he? But after the London riots, he yes. turned up in a street and waved a broom around. Yeah, eventually. Eventually, because he, he was uh, it was in a caravan in Canada or something like Yeah, that. he was in the Rockies. Yes, that's right. So he's come full circle because uh, Boris Johnson has been in the flood-affected areas again on Wednesday. He hasn't had the warmest reception, it's fair to say. It was quite polite. One person yeah. just said, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think people are just fed up. They're dealing with a terrible situation there and he kind of swans in and says hello and does his bomb. The trouble is, this thing. is one of those things where you cu- you actually can't win. Because if you don't go yeah. as Prime Minister, we'll say, where's Boris Johnson? Jeremy Corbyn's been here saying yeah. it's terrible and it wouldn't have happened in Surrey. Uh, and then Boris Johnson does turn up and everyone says, what are you doing here? You're diverting resources. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. thank you. <laughs> well, I don't think I'm the first person to say, actually, even though... Those might be not the most obliging clips. It doesn't do him any harm. And he seems to deal quite well with those situations where he's confronted by people who are possibly angry and he just sort of says, yep, I hear what you're saying and he's maybe better at doing 
that than Theresa May. Well, contrast that with Theresa May when yeah. she went to Grenfell and didn't meet anyone apart from some yeah. fire chiefs, and yeah. that was seen as uh, really bad management. Uh, what about Jeremy Corbyn? Has he had a good week, bad week? He hasn't had a brilliant week. Obviously, towards the beginning of the week, it was Remembrance Sunday, and both of the parties had big announcements on the armed forces, but very quickly, obviously, that swung round to... Jeremy Corbyn's own views on the military. And using the nuclear deterrent and all that sort of stuff, which is, always comes back to haunt him. We've also had a big announcement. John McDonald's done an interview with The Times where he's talked about the possibility of nationalising broadband, everybody having free broadband, which just seems like the latest... Because there used to be a, a sort of Ed Miliband approach of when they were talking about the squeeze middle, they would just find something and point it and go... Oh, that's expensive. And now the Labour, the, the table, the full conclusion of just going, right, we'll just make that free. We'll just yeah. make that free. Well, why can't they just nationalise everything? Maybe people should start putting in requests now. I mean, personally, I think Pizza Express has been in trouble. Maybe they should. I think nationalising that and a series of vouchers given out by the state. Exactly. I think, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> In the interview that John McDonald's done with the Times, he talks about how there would be a sort of customer representation on the national board of this nationalised broadband. So if your broadband doesn't work, you'll have to sort of get embroiled in some Whitehall pursuit. You can't switch because everyone else is going to... Anyway, I'm not sure if that's going to necessarily fly as, a, as an idea. Legally, well, not legally obliged. We could just ignore them if we wanted to. But the Lib Dems, Joe Swinson... I mean, she's doing what she can. It's in the traditional role of just silly photo ops. Yeah. Visiting yeah, boxing ring. gyms. She's been up in Sheffield as well and her wellies. I mean, they must be sick of the size of all these people. Yeah, unless all these um, politicians are going to lie down like sandbags and yeah. keep them... <laughs> crappy water out of my house I'm not sure they're of much use she's been trying to get herself on the agenda they've had another announcement on what they do on equalities and human rights I would say they've cut through a bit less because really when the focus isn't on what they would actually do in terms of brokering some kind of deal then it's all a bit by the by. Yeah, it goes from being... It's sort of amusing when Joe Swinson keeps saying she's going to be Prime Minister. Their stop Brexit thing, people get that, and that gets a bit of cut through because it contrasts the other. Once we start getting into Lib Dem programmes for investing in flood defences, everybody slightly switches off. So before you switch off as well, I think we'll leave it there. Esther Weber, thank you very much. So for this week's uh, Friday chat, I sat down with Professor Sir John Curtis and got him to talk me through what is or isn't happening in the polls. John, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here, Matt. Um, let's start with the obvious question. Can we trust the polls this time? Yes and no. There are certain things that the polls can very clearly tell you. One is the structure of the vote. In particular, what I mean is the relationship between how people's views about Brexit and how they're going to vote for the parties. The polls have to be incredibly wrong for it not to be the case that around 80% of Remain voters or so are going to vote for our party. A moment have been saying that they're going to vote for a party that's in favour of a second referendum. And around 80% of Leave voters are going to vote for a party that says, let's deliver Brexit. And that's common across the polls. And the difference is so big that, you know, it has to be true that Brexit <laughs> matters. I mean, other things, you know, such as, for example, the Labour Party is stronger amongst younger voters than older voters. I mean, that aspect of the structure 
has to be true. And, and the opposite is, is, is true of the Conservatives. The fact that the Conservative Party basically since July or so, since it became clear that Boris Johnson was going to become leader, has gradually been squeezing the Brexit party vote. That's clearly true. Conversely, the fact that at least we've gone into the beginning of this election, at least, with the Remain vote largely split between Labour and the Democrats. That has to be largely true. The polls are too consistent and the differences between these groups are too large. But then some of the polls have got the Labour Party doing much better. Well, sure, the structure of the polls is very similar and very clear. The bit where the poll, there's greater uncertainty about the polls is in the fine measurement of the exact state of the horse race, which, of course, is what most people tend to be interested in. So at the moment, we've got some polls that suggest been pretty consistently suggesting that Labour in recent weeks have been enjoying a double-digit lead. And one was so on the basis of that it doesn't really matter about the detail of the constituencies. The Conservatives are going to get a majority um, and ought to be a relatively comfortable four or five weeks, except, of course, we all remember what happened two years ago when the Tories started at well ahead. Conversely, other polls are saying, well, no, actually, the lead's not much more than single digits, maybe not much more than seven or eight points. And at that point, one goes, well, actually, the detail of the constituencies could be crucial. And there is at least some chance of a hung parliament. We're kind of on the cusp with the Tories being at 326 or not. And those differences are consistent in the end. We don't know who's right or who's wrong, although there's some interesting arguments going on amongst the pollsters about why some of these differences arise. Um, but then perhaps we should also then stand back and say, well, what is the state of the craft of polling in the wake of the fact in 2015, the industry collectively got it wrong. And in 2017, many, though not all polls, uh, got it wrong. Now, in 2015, the very clear conclusion of Patrick Sturgis, who read the Independent Inquiry, is that in the end, the pollsters had too many people, Labour people in the sample. It may, it may sound perfectly the obvious explanation, but you know people are much keener to say, well, it's shy Tories, um, et cetera, et cetera. Actually, the simple thing was it had too many Labour voters in the sample. Now, that might sound like a banal mistake to make, except, of course, what lay behind that, at least in part, is that the polls find it difficult to estimate turnout. Don't rely on polls to estimate turnout. As a result, they are always at risk, for example, of underestimating the differences in turnout between different groups, um, because essentially the people who are willing to answer opinion polls are more interested in politics than the rest of the population. More likely and also, if they've just answered a question about how you're going to vote, they're, sure, they're going the to say the they're going the, to vote. The fact that they're going to even click on the email link in the first place, so this is about politics, you know, you know, that makes a difference. So the point is that in 2015, what we saw emerge was this very sharp age difference in people's vote choice. Labour doing much better amongst younger people. The Conservatives doing much better amongst older people. And so therefore, because the polls were underestimating the age difference in turnout, this at least is one of the reasons why they ended up with too many Labour voters in the polls, because the young voters they spoke to did go out and vote Labour, but they weren't typical of other younger voters who might have voted Labour if they hadn't, if they'd turned out, but they didn't turn out. So that's the end of too many voters. So we then to fast forward to 2017, the part, many of polls, but not all of them, in the wake of that, tried to tweak and weight their data in such a way as they might overcome 
that apparent um, inability to uh, calculate turnout differences correctly. The trouble is, in so doing, it's pretty clear that many of them overrate the pudding <laughs> and end up pushing polls that, if you just look at the simple raw data, they weren't perfect, but they weren't that far out, but push them into much of an anti-Labour direction. So although the polls all of them picked up the fact that the Labour Party was gaining ground during the campaign, by the end of the campaign, most of them, but not all of them, had the Tories too far ahead. Interesting company, Salvation, who did nothing at all to change got it more or less right. And you, Gov, in one of their uh, uh, exercises, they also got it roughly right. Actually, they slightly underestimated the Tory position. Now, since 2017, basically all that waiting and filtering that was done to try to correct the problem in 2015 is gone. And in terms, therefore, of how the polls are being analysed, we're back to 2015. So what we have to hope, and herein lies the argument, that the efforts that the politicians have gone to in the last four years to improve the quality of their samples, such as, for example, trying to get more people involved who aren't terribly interested in politics and who may not turn out to vote, that those efforts have been more successful. Certainly, that's what some pollsters have been doing. They've also been trying to deal with the fact that they had very little, very few 70-year-olds in their pan- in the panels of people they interviewed. So it's fingers crossed in the sense that do the polls um, have better samples than four years ago because the methods are essentially the same. And then also there's a debate about, well, actually, are the pollsters weighting their data correctly to ensure that they get something like a representative result. Um, Now, at the moment, we've got a spread. So the answer to is probably going to be at best, some were right and some were (laughs) wrong. But at least if at least half of them were right, it would be an improvement on the last two elections. Now, while the pollsters are doing all that and trying to get it right in sort of 2015-2017 terms, the political picture is breaking up so much. The headline voting intention polls are becoming less and less useful. Aren't they? You, could have, you can have the Tories on 35, Labour on 25, Lib Dems on 20. But if you've got the SNP in Scotland, they're on 4%, 3% in those national polls. You've got the Brexit Party on maybe 10%, but then they're not standing in every seat in the country. How useful are those voter intention polls? And what else could we be looking at if not those? OK, well, the position since 2015 has been you have to look at Scotland separately. Yeah. Scotland became a separate country politically in 2015, and there is nothing different about that now. Other ways in which this election looks different are perhaps not as different as you might imagine. The Liberal Democrats have simply revived, but the Liberal Democrats are the Liberal Democrats who were the Liberal Democrats, though it may be that the character of their vote has changed. That's something we might want to come to. The Brexit party is simply UKIP reincarnate, okay? And UKIP did rather well in 2015. So to that extent, at least, we can exaggerate the extent to which we're looking at something different. In terms of the structure of party competition, the the thing that was different about the polls up to the beginning of this election campaign was that we had all the challenges at once. We've had the SNP doing well. We've had UKIP doing well. We've had the Democrats doing well. None of those things are new. All of them happening in the same election would be new. And we wait to see whether or not that still continues to be the case. Beyond that, one has to say, one of the reasons why people think, oh, this election is going to be very, very difficult to call, is they're looking at the polls and they're saying, well, the Tories have got lots of Leave voters and the Labour Party have got lots of Remain voters, as indeed certainly have the Liberal Democrats, all their gains amongst amongst Remain voters. This, therefore, is going to change the geography, except 
people do forget the geography was fundamentally changed in 2017. In the most leave voting areas of this country, the Conservative Party advanced more strongly than Labour, very completely contrary to the national position in the polls. Conversely, in the most remain areas, that's where the Tories suffered most. So we have to remember, therefore, that a big division between Remain and Leave voters is already baked into the baseline of the 2017 vote. Now, it may be that we'll go a bit further and there's reason to believe that indeed it might. But we do. I mean, the reason why Bishop Auckland and Workington are in everybody's list of marginal Labour seats is not because Boris Johnson has some magic that no other Conservative politician has. That means all of a sudden these seats look marginal. These seats were made marginal by one Theresa May in 2017 because they moved towards uh, the Conservatives against the National Party and thereby helped them to make marginal. What Boris Johnson simply has to do is to maintain the coalition that Theresa May put together. So to that extent, at least, you know, we're not necessarily... Now, of course, what is true, what is different is because the Remain vote is split between Labour and the Liberal Democrats. And because the Liberal Democrat vote has gone up wholly amongst Remain voters, and its vote is now much more Europhile than it has been traditionally, two things arise. Well, will the Liberal Democrats do very well in some of the places that are hoping to pick up from the Tories and Remain seats, and indeed places they're hoping to pick up from Labour in strongly Remain seats. But actually, the old Celtic fringe, which used to be part of their heartland, doesn't deliver. And the old Democrats might suddenly look like the party of the metropolitan in the university, uh, metropolitan city and the university towns, which would be a very, very different character from the part where the party's been historically. But also, of course, what we're wondering, well, to what extent Given that the one pact that hasn't happened is anything involving the Labour Party, is will voters who are primarily concerned to defeat the Conservatives because they dislike Brexit, will they be minded to and be successful in coalescing behind whichever party locally is best able to win, such that the Conservatives do less well. Um, there are reasons to believe they might and reasons to believe they, that they might. They wouldn't. The reasons to believe that they might is that we do have a considerable section of our population for whom being a Remainer or a Lever now matters, matters much more than which party that, that, that you back. We also know that in 1997, which was the election previously where new tactical voting was most prominent and had most effect, that was an election indeed when opposition voters just disliked the Tories. They wanted to end 18 years of Thatcherism. Labour and Liberal Democrat voters really did come in favour of whichever party was best placed locally. And they were pretty astute at working out which that was. On the other hand, the one thing that's missing that was there in 1997 is Labour and Liberal Democrats being nice to each other. Remember, <laughs> remember in 1997, the Liberal Democrats had said, we prefer Labour to the Conservatives. They had agreed a joint programme of constitutional change. It was an open secret that Tony Blair would form a coalition with the Liberal Democrats if he didn't get an overall majority. Joe Swinson is not saying, I like Jeremy Corbyn. Quite the opposite. And, and, and indeed, ex we can expect during the course of the next four weeks, the Liberal Democrats to spend a lot of time saying the reason why Boris Johnson got his deal through is thanks to Labour votes. You cannot rely on the Labour Party to stop Brexit. And it's the relative force, strength of these contradictory forces in the, and the, in the minds of voters that's going to determine whether or not, indeed, we get a changed electoral geography amongst the opposition that does or does not make it more difficult for the Conservatives to get a majority. I'll be back after this short break. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. Joined for our Friday chat with Professor Sir John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University, consultant at Nathsend Social Research, a senior fellow at the UK in a changing Europe, and legendary polling guru. And so on tactical voting, does it work? Can it work? There's going to be lots of apps and websites and recommendations, sometimes contradictory recommendations, depending on which party sure. the, the builders of the app favour. Can it work and have a major impact on the outcome of the election? It can work, and history would suggest that if it works very well, it could have a modest effect on the outcome of election, but a modest effect might be a crucial effect. Historically, around one in 10 voters, maybe sometimes one in eight have voted tactically. Now, that frankly includes people who go, well, look, you know, frankly, I'd always vote Liberal Democrat, but they don't have a hope of winning the election, so I'm voting for somebody else. So that's that kind of national squeeze on them. Um, but um, you do find um, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, voters being willing to to move. Um, Labour voters are probably more willing to switch to the Democrats in places where the Democrats are strong than, than vice versa. But the difficulty about it is that in order to be willing to vote tactically, you have to be somebody who hates one party that you think might win locally and you're pretty indifferent between the other two don't really mind which one wins and of course that's not how the psychology of most voters work most voters who for example hate the Tories are people who are pretty ardent Labour supporters or vice versa if you hate the Labour Party you're pretty likely to be an ardent Tory supporter and that therefore the Liberal Democrats are not an acceptable option to you so that limits traditionally at least the range of people willing uh, to vote tactically. But um, uh, so, uh, so we shouldn't necessarily expect a large number of people to do it. But, you know, if in a if across a swathe of constituencies, you know, something like uh, 5% of the electorate vote tactically and they all do so in the same direction, sure, that can make a noticeable difference in terms of the number of seats. And particularly 1996, 
27, some degree uh, 2001. You could see that new tactical voting. And even in 2017, I mean, there weren't very many seats where the Democrats could credibly claim we've got a better chance of beating the Tories here to the Labour Party because they were so weak position after 2015. But actually where they were... The Labour advance was weaker and the Liberal Democrats did better, which is one of the reasons why they ended up with 12 seats in 2017 rather than eight, even though the vote didn't go up. So, yes, it can make a modest difference. But I think certainly some of the uh, claims we've seen of like if a third of Remain voters uh, voted um, uh, to uh, voted tactically, then the result would be transformed. That's setting your heights, <laughs> your, bit, your, your target high. very high. But the point is, even a modest target, if it all works in the same direction, could be crucial. And here, to be honest, it is that won't just be to do with tactical voting websites. Here, boring uh, um, reality politics will matter. If a party is going to try to persuade voters to vote tactically, one of the things they need to do is to have a visible presence locally. I mean, one of the ways in which historically the Liberal Democrats and before that the Liberal Party would get people to vote for them tactically was to give the impression that they really were challenging locally. So they paint the constituency <laughs> orange. Even the fields with sheep in were painted orange if they weren't uh, conservative farmers to try to give the sense of, look, actually, Look, your neighbours your neighbors put a poster up. This neighbour's put a poster up. Now, that physical presence is something you can only do in the real world. It's much more difficult to do in the virtual world. And there, like an old-fashioned face-to-face canvassing, campaigning, getting people to put posters up, getting up yard signs, all that kind of thing. And again, so it will depend here on the relative efficacy of the parties to do some of that in the constituencies where they think they've got a chance. Now, you're probably best known for political geeks for doing the exit poll yeah. on election night. Mm, that's the cross that I bear, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just explain how an exit poll works. How do you go about doing it and how do you turn it around so quickly and then hopefully get it right? Well, at its simplest, an exit poll is a very simple exercise. At around 140 or so polling stations across the country, some uh, very brave and, uh, and at this election, probably quite cold um, <laughs> interviewers stand outside the polling station at a distance that doesn't disturb uh, the, the process of voting and uh, says to a one in N sample of people leaving the polling station, look, um, I know you've just voted. Would you mind filling in you know, this ballot paper? You know, by the way, it's for the telly tonight. It'll be on at 10 o'clock. You know. Would you mind filling this ballot paper? And here's a mock ballot box. And just fill in the ballot paper in the same way. And the ballot paper is literally a mock-up of the one they've just completed. Now, about 20% of people say, I'm terribly sorry, but I've got something else better to do. Uh, but <laughs> but the, at its simplest, that is all it is. But of course, there's a bit more to it than that. We have two problems with doing exit polls in this country, one of which we can do something about, the other we can't do a lot about. The first, and, and it distinguishes this country from most other mature democracies. Number one is we vote on a working day rather than on a Sunday, which means that most of the voting happens between about five and seven in the evening as people do it on their way home 
from work, which means the data arrives rather late. Now, if I've done exit polls in Greece, for example, on a Sunday, well, everybody's voted by lunchtime <laughs> um, because it's too darn hot in the afternoon. Um, so you've got four hours to play with the data because very little new data is going to come in. And that's true of lots of countries which vote on a Sunday. People go out, you know, even if they're still uh, religious, they'll go into the polling station after uh, after church if it's if it's Western Christendom. That, that's point one. But the second difficulty, the real difficulty in this for this we have to blame the victorians is that normally at least and certainly not for general elections we do not we do not count our elections by polling station in virtually every other country what happens when the polls close is that the people in the individual polling station count the votes for that polling station fill in a form and then maybe maybe go off to somewhere else. But on the way, you know, people who've been observing the count can get a copy of what's what's been in. So they can, they, there's an audit trail, okay? In this country, for some reason, we think it's perfectly safe to get the votes from a polling station on Eriskay and get them in a boat or a helicopter in the middle of the night to storm away. We don't think there is any chance of anybody hijacking these polling boxes or trying to stuff them, etc., etc. We're extraordinarily trusting about the process of getting these uh, unopened, unverified ballot boxes to a central count. But we do this because the Victorians were desperately, when they went for the secret ballot act, they said, we need to make it clear that people can't say, Tahoe was voted. So we therefore don't count by polling station. We bring the whole things together. And once we've checked how many ballot papers there are in the ballot box, we then muddle all the ballot boxes together before we start counting. So it's very, so we don't get precinct level counts. So therefore you don't know whether any sample of polling districts that you might go to is representative of anything. So how do we cope with this? I was going to say, because they still end up being amazingly accurate yeah, yeah. given well, all well, that. Well, here's the trick. Here's the trick, right? We don't make any claim that they're representative, right? But there is one crucial statistical observation. And for this, we owe a lot to David Firth of Warwick University, who used to be involved in this. And David said, look, the level of support for political parties varies dramatically from Wick to St. Ives. So it's very difficult to estimate correctly the levels of support for the parties. However, the change in levels of support for the parties varies a great deal. Yes, yes, it varies to some degree. So what the exit poll should be about is not estimating level, but change. How do you estimate change? You conduct the exit poll wherever possible in exactly the same places where you conducted the last exit poll. And basically what you are extracting out of the, the, by comparing these two polls is an estimate. You've got 140 estimates of the change in vote share because you know what happened at that polling station last time because you've got your exit poll result from last time. So you've got 140 estimates of the change in party vote share. And that's the central statistics that come out of this process. So it's not one exit poll, it's really comparing two. And then you can you can then model that. We know a lot about the characteristics of the constituencies in which these polling stations are embedded. You can therefore try to model them statistically and say, well, you know, constituencies which in which everybody does their washing with OMO are swinging to Labour, but all those constituencies where everybody does their washing with does are very, swinging towards the Conservatives. So we can therefore include, you know, what washing power do people use in that constituency in our model. And that therefore means you're then basically coming up with an equation that says, well, look, you know, um, uh, in constituencies with lots of uh, DAS voters, this is going to happen, lots of OMO voters, this is going to happen. And that enables you to provide, e construct estimates of the change in vote share for every constituency based on the, 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 on the equations. 
from which you can then calculate what you think the level is going to be. And then there's another bit of trickery, which is you then convert. So if we reckon conservative 40%, labor 40%, we just call that a 50-50 shot. And we say half a seat each, okay? It's probabilities, all right? Which again, reduces your risk. So, so that's that, that's the secret. Now it's worked reasonably, it's not worked perfectly. I will point out to people that in 2015, actually we had the Tories at what, 316 and they got 331. Um, but because of course we said that the Tories were clearly going to be the largest party and all the polls were casting doubt on that, everybody thought we were heroes. So don't necessarily expect to be perfect. And the truth is, you know, it's quite possible that on the night we will say, you know what, we think the Tories are going to be the largest party. We think that maybe they're going to get about 322 seats. But, of course, if in the end they get 327, perfectly good exit poll, but it's Tory largest party and we're probably out of the European Union. Conversely, if it's 317 seats, very good exit poll, but it probably means hung parliament, Boris Johnson out, and we're going to apply for an extension order to hold a second EU referendum. So there is a point at which <laughs> the outcome is potentially very, very close. And we might all be, frankly, sitting well, well into the night to know which of these outcomes, both of which look perfectly, perfectly plausible. Because this is now so much of a knife-edge election, it's not really about who wins, it's whether Boris wins or not. Uh, and because, you know, we could be close to the 3-2-6 mark, um, we could give you quite a good uh, exit poll, but you still won't know what the political implications will be but until later in the night. I suppose that's my final question then. What are your top tips for staying up all night? To be honest, the answer to that is to be so um, engrossed in what's going on, uh, trying to work out what's happening and having a minor panic about whether the exit poll is right <laughs> or not, that there is no way that you can possibly go to sleep. Of course, strictly speaking, what the exit poll should do, it should allow the nation to go to sleep. You know, you should be able to turn on at 10 o'clock and know what the result's going to be and go, OK, right, fine, OK, I, I, I can get a, a good night's kip. The problem, of course, has been in recent elections is that on each occasion, in some way or another, we have contradicted the conventional wisdom and everybody's been up not to find out who wins but to find out whether the exit poll is right or not <laughs> now maybe this time the poll we, we and at least some of the polls we're in agreement and uh, there won't be so much excitement and everybody can go to bed and uh, given that Christmas is coming maybe that will be uh, received gratefully by by the nation <laughs> John Curtis well, best of luck with the exit poll Thank John you. Curtis thanks very much don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss future episodes and send your questions record them on your phone and email there's a red box at thetimes.co.uk and we'll try and answer them in forthcoming episodes. Subscribe to my morning email as well at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. I get up at 5am and trawl through all of the election coverage so that you don't have to. Uh, but for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.